Good morning, church. If you've got your copy of God's Word with you, whether you're worshiping with us at home or here in the sanctuary, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, as we continue our series through the Gospel of Mark, I'm grateful to Pastor David for asking me to fill in in his absence. So we will continue with Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 34. That is a passage known as the greatest commandment. It seems like in our, in our culture, we are interested in greatest questions. Questions of who is the greatest or what is the greatest. And in fact, people have even proved this this morning, as I've shared this in the other two messages, that we, we have these debates about who is the greatest leader of all time. So some may say we certainly have Jesus mentioned in there. We would maybe have Julius Caesar, uh, Alexander the Great, Gandhi. Some would say George Washington, Abraham Lincoln. Some would say Winston Churchill. So who's the greatest leader in history? And then it seems like we especially like the debates of who who are the greatest sports players. So who is the greatest baseball player in history? Who's the greatest baseball player in history? Some would say Hank Aaron, Mickey Mantle. Some would say Babe Ruth. Some would say Willie Mays. Uh, If you're a Braves fan, you may think more recently about Chipper Jones. Pastor David would no doubt uh, want a Cubs player to be mentioned, whether that be past or present. And then maybe who's the greatest football player of all time? So this is where my point has been proven this morning. Who's the greatest football player of all time? So some may say uh, Joe Montana. Others may say Jerry Rice. Others may say Tim Brown or more recently quarterback Tom Brady. And so where people have proved this this morning is on the comments I've received after services of Brad, you didn't mention an Auburn player. Brad, you didn't mention an Alabama player. And so Ben Hale, who's on staff here, our our minister of mission, pastor of missions and evangelism, he said, Brad, how can you not mention Bo Jackson? So Ben wants Bo Jackson's name to be mentioned as the greatest football player. And then Alabama fans after the second service are like, Brad, you didn't mention any Alabama players. So you got plenty to choose from. So maybe uh, Joe Namath, you know, I don't know, we can throw in an Alabama player. And it's not because I'm an Alabama or an Auburn fan, but people, we like to have those debates. And so some may say, well, let's talk about who's the greatest coach or who's the greatest basketball player. That seems to be one that is common, and, and we, it usually boils down to Michael Jordan and LeBron James, who's the best. Some may throw Kobe Bryant in there. I always really liked uh, watching Larry Bird play growing up. I liked watching Michael Jordan play growing up, and I, I would cast my opinion on who is the greatest, but that's not necessarily important or why we're here this morning. We could also get into what is the greatest movie. What's the greatest movie in history? What's the greatest movie there is? And so we could talk about that. And that's really a matter of taste and a matter of flavor and opinion on movies. So we could name some of those. Some of my favorites are The Gladiator, Remember the Titans, The Patriot. Those are some of my favorites, favorites so you can see what kind of movie I like. And so these greatest questions, they go back even to the time of Jesus. And we see one mentioned right here in Mark chapter 12 that this scribe comes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, which is the greatest commandment? Which commandment is the most important? And Jesus doesn't just give him one, he gives him two. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love God above everything else and love your neighbor as yourself. And our response to these two commandments more than any of the others reveals what's most important to us. It reveals what matters most to us. And what we see throughout the gospels is that Jesus is after our heart. He's after your heart and he's after my heart. He wants total allegiance 
to him. And so what, what, our response to these two commandments that Jesus ties together as one reveals our heart. So let's look at Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 34. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is hero Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So the most important commandment, Jesus says, is love God above everything else. See this in verses 28 through 30. This is a familiar passage for us, a cornerstone of Christian values. And and some of you, if you were asked, uh, sum up Jesus's teaching in a couple of sentences. It very well may be that you would come to this passage. Jesus, in uh, Mark's recording of this passage, says that all the law and the prophets hang on this, that this sums up the law and the prophets that it sums up the law and the prophets. So Jesus uh, helps sum that up for us. And this scribe comes to Jesus. He's heard the dispute between the Sadducees and Jesus about the resurrection. This was one of many disputes or squabbles that the religious leaders desire to get into with Jesus to trap him. We see this in the passage preceding verses uh, 28 through 34 and verses 18 through 27. We see this dispute and this scribe sees that Jesus answered well. And so he comes to Jesus, there's no malice or vicious intent in his question here. He wants to know which is the greatest commandment. This was a common debate. And some context would be helpful for us here to know that in the first five books of the Bible, in in the Torah, the law, there are 613 commandments according to rabbinic tradition. And 365 of those are negative commands, meaning they say, don't do this. 248 of those are positive commands, meaning they say, do do this, or they say, don't do this. So there's 365 negative that say, don't do this. There's 248 positive that say, do this. And Jesus refers to these commandments often. And there are times when Jesus tightens the commandment. And there's times when Jesus loosens the commandment. Matthew chapter five is an example of this where Jesus tightens the commandment. He says, you've heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So here Jesus says, don't just not murder. Don't be angry with your brother. Don't hate your brother. He tightens the commandment. And then in Matthew chapter 12, verses nine through 14, the Pharisees question why Jesus would heal a man's withered hand on the Sabbath. Why would Jesus do this healing on the Sabbath, this work on the Sabbath? And Jesus says, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than sheep, than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Jesus can tighten and loosen the commands because he is the fulfillment of the law and the commandments. He came to fulfill the law and he did so in his perfect life. And he hears this scribe's question and he gladly answers him. And he takes us to the heart 
of the commandments, to the heart of what really matters in life, and that is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. He responds quickly and precisely to this young man, and he quotes the Shema from Deuteronomy chapter six, which says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. This was a common confession that devout Jews would quote and the, they would recite it in the morning and in the evening. So this was a familiar passage to these religious leaders. This scribe would know this well. It, it, in the Shema it tells us that our God is God alone and we're called to love him, worship him, and be devoted to him above everything else. And the Shema also, as we read through it, it instructs us that to love God is to obey his commandments that it's to instruct them to our children when we sit down, when we lie down, when we rise up, reminding ourselves, reminding our children of God's faithfulness and for us to be obedience to his commands. What does it mean to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? What does it mean to love God above everything else? Notice the repetition of the word all in this passage. Four times the word all is used. And it's emphasized, it emphasizes the all-embracing nature of how we are to love God. It's a response of total love and devotion to our God. The use of heart, soul, mind, and strength shows that it's with every fiber of our being that we love him. It appeals to the, our four emotions, or to our emotions of our, our emotions, our spirit, our thought life, our mind, and our physical body. It speaks to the totality of our being, that our emotions, our spirit, our thought life, and our physical body. Sam Storms is a pastor in Oklahoma at Bridgeway Church, and he provides some really helpful introspective questions to help us think about our love for God. Here are some of those questions. There's six of them. They'll be on the screen as we walk through these. Is God the all-consuming passion of my life? Is God the all-consuming passion of my life? That's that totality of our love for God, all-consuming passion. Question number two, do I have a deep, intense, and abiding affection for God? Do I have a deep, intense, and abiding affection for God? Question number three, am I loyal to my God with an exclusive love? We see throughout scripture that God will have no rivals, that we can't serve two masters because we'll love the one and hate the others. He will have no other idols before him. He'll have no other gods before him. Am I loyal to my God with an exclusive love? Fourth question, do I enjoy spending time with my Lord? We, We enjoy spending time with those that we love. We enjoy spending time in the presence of those that we love and we care about and that we're devoted to. So do I enjoy spending time with my Lord? Question number five, do I do things that please my Lord and increase his joy? Do I do things that please my Lord and increase his joy? Or do I do things that displease him and that dishonor him? Sixth question, do I talk with my Lord as much as I can? Do I talk with my Lord as much as I can? Do I desire to spend time with him in prayer, presenting my requests to him, but also hearing from him, allowing his Holy Spirit to speak to us, listening to God, listening to him through his word as his Holy Spirit speaks to us and guides us. But let's remember that we don't do these things. Our response to these questions is not to earn God's love. It's not to get God to love us more. These are things we do because we love him. John the Apostle captures it well in 1 John chapter 4, 
In verse 10 he says, and this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. It's not that we loved God, but that he first loved us. And that's what he says in verse 19 in 1 John chapter four. We love because he first loved us. God doesn't accept us because we love him. He, we obey and we love God because he accepts us in and through Jesus. And, and we're often tempted to wave our good deeds around. We're often tempted to wave our love and obedience to God around in front of others and in front of God saying, look at these things that I do because we think God will love us more. We think others will think more highly of us. And so we are tempted to wave these things around, but that is exactly the opposite of what scripture teaches. We, we can't earn God's love. Jesus teaches the opposite. He teaches us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, says the Apostle Paul. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When our righteous acts are like filthy rags, God loves us. When we were still dead in our sins and transgressions, God sent Jesus to pay the penalty for our sins to make us alive in Christ so that we can be taken from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive. It is only through his love for us displayed in his son Jesus on a blood-stained cross that we can be made right with him, that we can love him. Our obedience does not earn his love. It's our response to his love. The most important commandment, Jesus says, is love the Lord your God above everything else. And the second goes right together with it. The second goes together with the first, Jesus will tell us, love others genuinely. Love your neighbor Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Verses 31 through 34 is where we see this. Jesus gave this scribe more than he asked for. This guy only wanted, he wanted to know the most important commandment. He didn't ask for the two most important. He wanted to know the most important. Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He says, the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus pulls these two commandments together. These two commandments go together and they go together because how we respond to the first, how we respond to the first will determine how we live the second. How we respond to the first will determine how we live the second. Our love for God will be made known by the way we love our neighbor. When, when we obey the second, it exposes that we have fully and wholly embraced the first. These two commandments, Jesus says, are not to be separated. He ties them together as one, love for God and love for others. Tim Keller says it this way. When Jesus says all the law, when Jesus says all the laws boil down to love God and love your neighbor, he is saying we have not fulfilled a law by simply avoiding what the law prohibits. But we must also do and be what the law is really after, namely love. We must also do and be what the law is really after, namely love. Jesus boils down these two greatest commandments. He sums up all 613 as love. Love for God, love for neighbor. John, again, captures this well in 1 John 4, 21, and this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. John's saying you can't claim to embrace the first if you don't live the second. And so is this a self-centered love? Is it, this could sound selfish. Love your neighbor as yourself, but we need to be reminded that each one of us is created in the image of God. We're created by his redeeming and creating love. And so to not love ourselves is to call into question God's wisdom and goodness in creation. 
But when we read that we are to love our neighbor as ourself, it's our response to God's love. That when we fully love God, it turns our love for ourselves to an outward love for neighbor and helps us practice Philippians chapter two, verse four, to put the interest of others above our own interest. It doesn't mean that we don't meet our own needs. It doesn't mean that we don't seek to fulfill our own needs and take care of ourselves. What it means is that we seek to love and serve our neighbors and to care for them with the same energy, passion, and zeal that we seek to take care of our own needs. That we love our neighbor as ourself. Many of you are familiar with the, the 19th century uh, French novel by Victor Hugo, Les Mis, that one of the most powerful opening scenes of any novel. It was also made a Broadway musical. It was made a, into a movie in more recent years. And in Les Mis, in that opening scene, we see Jean Valjean, this bitter criminal, come from a, he's released from a uh, hard labor camp in France. And as he's released in the night, he, he stumbles into the home of a priest. And as he stumbles into this home with a priest, the priest brings him in and welcomes him and gives him food and lodging for the night. And in the middle of the night, Jean Valjean uh, begins to steal silver from the priest. And he begins to stuff silver into a bag. And the priest hears the commotion. He gets up to go see what is going on. And Jean Valjean beats him over the head, knocks him out, and he takes off with the silver, stealing the silver from this priest. Well, not too long after that, the police catch Jean Valjean and they bring him back to the, the priest and they say, hey, he told us you gave him this silver. And the priest says, I did give him the silver. And, and he says, in fact, Jean Valjean, I'm very upset with you because I also gave you these two silver candlesticks which are worth a lot of money and you didn't take them. Why didn't you take them, Jean Valjean? You could have gotten a lot of money for these. And of course, the police are stunned by this turn of events. Jean Valjean, no doubt, is stunned by this turn of events. The priest is standing there still bruised and bloody from ha him having beat him over the head in the night. And the, pre the police released Jean Valjean, and the priest walks over to him, and he says, don't you forget it. Don't you ever forget it. You have promised to become a new man, and now I give you back to God. And the rest of the story is about Jean Valjean becoming that new man, that a recipient of great love, a recipient of extravagant mercy, a recipient of great grace and mercy, he becomes a giver of great love and mercy. He becomes generous with love. He becomes generous with grace. He becomes generous with forgiveness. And this is what happens to you and I when we are really transformed by the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It transforms our life to where we love God above everything else and we love our neighbor as ourselves because we have experienced the grace of the gospel in our life and it changes us from the inside out. That's why these two commandments go together. Jesus says there's no other commandment greater than these. He doesn't say commandments greater than these. He ties them together. One commandment. There's no other commandment greater than these. Love your neighbor as yourself here. Just like the Shema was quoted from Deuteronomy. Love your neighbor as yourself is quoted from Leviticus chapter 19. And as we love God, we love those who are created by God in his image. Neighbor is not a restrictive word. It includes all humanity including our enemies. To love our neighbor means we love those who may be difficult for us to love, to love those who may treat us in a way that we wouldn't want them to treat us, but we treat them as we would want to be treated. We love our enemies, we love those who are difficult to love. 
D.A. Carson is Professor Emeritus of New Testament at Trinity uh, Evangelical Divinity School in Chicago, and he provides a really helpful examination of Leviticus chapter 19, where Jesus quoted, love your neighbor as yourself. And where we see this commandment, D.A. Carson notes that loving your neighbor means a lot, and he lists things, other things that are listed about loving our neighbor in Leviticus chapter 19. So in the same way that we ask ourselves introspective questions about our love for God, we can hear this list from Leviticus chapter 19 and evaluate how we're doing in loving our neighbor. He notes that loving your neighbor as yourself means a lot. It means, among other things, that you will care for the poor, that you will not steal, that you will not lie, that you will be fair in your business dealings. How are you doing in being fair in your business dealings? That you'll care for the deaf and the blind, that you'll deal justly with all. How are you doing dealing justly with all? That you'll avoid slander, that you'll not jeopardize the life of your neighbor, that you'll not hate your brother or sister, that you will rebuke your neighbor when necessary for their good. So when a brother or sister in Christ, we see them living in sin, we rebuke them because that's necessary for their good, desiring that they be reconciled to God through Christ and reconciled and forgiven of their sin and that we don't take revenge or bear a grudge against others. All of that is in Leviticus chapter 19. When God tells us to love our neighbor as ourself, he doesn't leave much to the imagination, but he makes it clear what loving our neighbor looks like. Look at the response of this scribe in verse 32 and 33. He affirms Jesus' confession that God is one. There's no other. He confirms complete love and devotion and worship that our God is worthy to receive. He adds that love for God and neighbor is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. He acknowledges those things. He now sees that true religion is a matter of the heart. It's not a matter of religious ritual. And so as he's beginning to see this, Jesus acknowledges to him, he says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. What what does Jesus mean by this response to the scribe? Does he mean work harder and you'll get it? You're, You're close, but work harder and you'll get it. Does it mean you're close, but do more, be more obedient and you'll get it? What Jesus is helping this young man see is that he is now seeing the heart of the matter. That is love God above everything else. Love your neighbor as yourself. This this scribe is beginning to see that obedience to the law will never earn God's favor. It will never give us entrance into God's kingdom because there's not enough obedience, there's not enough good things that you or I can do to measure up to God's holy standard. What you and I need is for God to make us a new creation in and through Jesus Christ. As the Apostle Paul says, therefore if, anyone is, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. Behold, the new has come. We need God to give us a new heart through Jesus Christ. And as we draw near to Christ who brought the kingdom near to us through him, we can love God above everything else. Through him, we can love our neighbor as ourself with a genuine, authentic love. And we see these two commandments come together in the cross of our Savior, Jesus. That the cross demonstrates to us that Jesus loved God above everything else. What does he say before he goes to the cross when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane? Not my will be done, but your will be done. Thy will be done. He's surrendering to God's will out of love and devotion to him. And then the cross demonstrates his genuine, authentic, unconditional love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ would go to the cross for your sins 
and for my sins. We see this commandment come together in the cross. So I ask you this morning, what do these commandments reveal about your heart? Where is your heart? Do you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength? And do you love your neighbor as yourself? Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords, says there is no commandment greater than these. Let's pray together. God, as we hear your word preached this morning, we know that your word exposes our heart, that your word cuts to the heart of what is important to us, that it reveals idols and other gods that we have put before you, that it reveals areas where we may not be loving our neighbor as ourselves. And so, God, we thank you that you convict us. Thank you that your Holy Spirit guides us into truth. And God, thank you that through your son, Jesus Christ, who came to fulfill the law, he gives us redemption and reconciliation through his cross. God, thank you for sending Jesus. God, as we worship this morning, as we sing a song of response, we pray that you would speak to us. Reveal those areas of sin that we need to confess to you. Reveal those areas where we may not be loving you above everything else. And reveal those areas where we might, may not be loving our neighbor as ourself. In Jesus' name, I pray, amen.